Uh, so 1 Samuel 17, um, starting at verse 4. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armour of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome you and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to the camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out, as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up the lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of the supplies, ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, This is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine you and fight him. You are only a young man, and he's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, 
Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock. I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the poor of the lion and the poor of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, the Lord will be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put on a coat of armour on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on the sword over the tunic and tried walking around, because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in... (laughs) put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was more, little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you came against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This is the day of the Lord, this this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give you the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag, taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the head, on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with a sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. The dead were strewn along Sharaim, the Sharaim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. G'day. Uh, welcome, everyone. My name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. Particularly welcome if this is one of your first times. Uh, welcome. This has got to be, as Sam was saying, one of the most famous stories in the Bible, right? And it's great. The little guy against the big guy. It's kind of like the underdog story of the ages. And like Sam was saying, this, this is one of those stories that's got life outside the Bible. The phrase, David and Goliath battle, gets used in newspapers and to talk about sports matches all the time. But even in churches and in Christian households, this story is just one of the favourites. It's, it's just got this brilliant tension built into the story. As Sarah read it there, just, just, we, we get these two armies eyeing each other off across the valley and a challenger comes out, a giant on one side and then a boy steps out on the other side and there's this tension that's thick in the air. You're thinking, what's going to happen? 
And it just makes for this great story of victory, doesn't it? David trusts in God. He shows this immense faith in God. When no one else in Israel was trusting in God, David trusted God, and God gives him this amazing victory. This is a story of faith in action. But there's another reason why the David and Goliath story is so great. Because over the years, because it's such a famous story, so many Christians and books and sermons have been written about what it means. There are books and sermon series on things like what the five smooth stones represent and how to speak to the Goliaths in your life and how Saul can represent the people in your life who try to use you and take credit for the things you do. And it's just endless. And the thing is, the way people read and understand and apply this part of the Bible ends up revealing how they read and apply and understand the whole Bible how they understand what the Bible is and what the Bible is talking about and and how you go about reading and understanding it. And so that's one of the key things we're going to look at today. As we go through this passage, we're going to step back and think about how we read the Bible, what we bring to the Bible as we read it so we can understand it properly. So let's pray and let's ask God to help us read His Word as we do that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You speak to us in Your Word. And so we ask that today, as we look at your word, as we've read it, as we understand it, please help us by your spirit to understand what you are saying. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the story of David and Goliath comes at a really low point in the book of 1 Samuel. So chapter 15, that was just before this, has just described how God regrets having made Saul the king of Israel. And so, as readers, as we the readers are reading through 1 Samuel, we're up to this point in the beginning of chapter 16 where we're wondering, okay, if God's rejected Saul, who will God choose next? What's God going to do about a new king? And if there's going to be a new king, then what's going to happen to Saul? All the questions are in the air. And so, that's what chapter 16 goes straight into. So, in your Bibles, come back a chapter with me and look at chapter 16, verse 1. Chapter 16, Verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. So straight away, God's rejected Saul and he sends Samuel, the prophet, to Bethlehem to the home of Jesse and his many sons, the oldest of whom is called Eliab. Uh, And so, look what happens in verse 6, take a look from verse 6 of what happens when Samuel meets Eliab. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So it seems that this Eliab looks like he could make a good next king, right? Which is funny because it's a little bit bit like how Saul looked a few chapters earlier. Remember how Saul looked like he would make a good king? Saul was a head taller than everyone else in Israel. And both Saul and Eliab look like they might be king material for Israel. 
But God reminds Samuel that God's not interested in the outward appearance. God doesn't need someone to look big and powerful. God is interested in the heart because God will use those with his heart. And so Eliab, the oldest, is asked to stand aside. And then Abinadab, the next son, gets brought forward and he's asked to stand aside. And then the next son's brought forward, he's asked to stand aside and the next and the next. Until Samuel has to ask this really awkward question to Jesse in verse 11. Are these all the sons you have? Do you have other sons that maybe aren't here? And so they go and they send for the youngest son, Pavid. And it's a little bit like how with Saul, remember how when they went to anoint Saul as king... They had to go and find him, but he was hiding in the luggage. It's a little bit like that, although rather than David hiding in the luggage, David's not hiding, David's protecting sheep. David's doing important work. But the weird thing is that after all that talk from God to Samuel about not considering the appearance, look at how David is described in verse 12. In verse 12, David was glowing with health and had a fine appearance, fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. It's weird, after God has said, don't look at his appearance, David appears awesome. He, he looks, well, he's good looking for one thing, And so regardless of that, the the next thing, regardless of all that, what we've seen is the next king of Israel has been chosen by God and anointed by Samuel. And so this question remains, what is going to happen with Saul, the existing king? Because he's still king, right? Well, the rest of chapter 16 is about how Saul has lost God's spirit. God's spirit's now on David and uh, it's off Saul. And Instead, Saul is now tormented by an evil spirit. And so Saul's attendants, they suggest that he finds someone who can play the lyre, which is kind of like a harp, and soothe Saul's nerves. And so who do they find but a young man from Bethlehem? David. And look again how David is described in verse 18 by one of the attendants. Look in verse 18. I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and he's a fine-looking young man and the Lord is with him. Look, I don't know about you, there's probably more comments about how good-looking David is here than I'm comfortable with, but notice how David is already known as a brave warrior. It's just a little hint in chapter 16 about what David talks about in chapter 17 about being able to defeat lions and bears before facing Goliath. And so that's what chapter 17 brings us. I won't go through all of chapter 17, but I want to point out a few interesting things that happen in chapter 17. So first of all, you've got to think about what's happening here with Saul as Goliath appears. So remember how everyone thought Saul was going to be a great king? One of the reasons they thought Saul would be a great king was because he was a head taller than everyone else, it was because of his appearance and height. So, Kish, uh, in, in chapter 9, verse 2, Kish had a son named Saul, 
as handsome as a young man could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than everyone else. Again, with the handsome young man thing. And so you've got to imagine, Saul is kind of like the Sam Hilton of Israel. (laughs) Not the handsome thing, the tall thing, Sam. (laughs) Yeah, we don't care. Uh, Saul's like the Sam Hilton of Israel. If there's a crowd of Israelites, Saul's the one whose head's sticking out up above everyone else. He's the giant of Israel. And now Israel is facing the Philistines and the giant of the Philistine comes out. Who is going to battle the giant of the Philistines? But the giant of Israel. This is Saul's battle. Saul is the obvious choice who should be stepping out as the king, leading his people, fighting the giant. But see what Saul does? Saul ends up taking off his own armour. Taking off his own armour. It seems to be his armour, which would have been bigger than, too big for all the guys in Israel, let alone one of the teenagers. Saul, in that moment, is really handing over his responsibility for Israel. He's handing over his responsibility as the leader of Israel. He's appointing David with his position. Another interesting thing that's worth noting is the word champion. So, twice in this chapter, Goliath is called the champion of Gath. Now, this is a little bit of a weird word. This word only appears in the whole Old Testament in this chapter, twice. And uh, it, it's a bit weird. It's the word between, but it's in a weird kind of form. So, in the same way that we can use the word between, um, the in-betweener, like that, it's a weird form of the English word, that's kind of what it is in Hebrew, and so what it just means is the man of the in-between, and the reason they use the word champion, because it tries to capture this idea that Goliath is the man between armies, he's the man who stands in the breach between two armies, he leads his army, he stands in front of his army as the champion of the battleground. And so that means when David steps out from the Israelite line, and he starts walking towards Goliath. In that moment, David is the champion of Israel. He is the man of the in-between. In fact, the battle that they're going to have is to determine who really is the man of the in-between, who is the man between armies, who is the man to whom both armies will honour and obey. Third point. It's worth noting David's heart in chapter 17 because we get told to look at it in chapter 16, right? Because we hear David's heart in the way he talks to Saul and to Goliath. So, just look with me again, chapter 17, verse 37. Look at what David says to Saul. The Lord, who rescued me from the poor of the lion and the poor of the bear, will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And again, look at verse 47, what David says to Goliath. He says, all those who are gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. And He will give all of you into our hands. See, David really does trust, this is David's heart, he really does trust that God will rescue him from Goliath's hand. And he really does trust that it won't be any effort at all. That if God is in the battle, if this is the Lord's battle and He wants an outcome to happen, it's not going to be an effort at all, it's not going to be hard. See, David sees the battle, he sees Goliath, not 
according to outward appearance, just like the Lord does. But David sees Goliath and the battle in the world through God's eyes. This is barely even a battle if God is in it. And so David lets loose his sling, Goliath falls. Everyone's shocked. The Philistines flee and Israel pursues. It's a victory for David as the true king. It's a victory for Israel. David's victory is a victory for Israel and it's a seal of approval on God's choice of king. But what does it mean for us? I mean, how should we approach passages like this awesome passage and then apply them to us? Because as I mentioned before, I did some searching this week about what the David and Goliath story means, how to apply it to us and how different Christians have applied it. And there is so much out there. There are so... I was surprised. There's two main ideas that come out again and again. The first idea of how to apply this passage is the idea that God loves the underdog, right? That God loves the one who appears weak and meek and unassuming and, and what that means, what we're meant to apply from that is that we need to stop underestimating ourselves. When we feel small and weak, we need to remember David and remember that God can use little people with big hearts and big faith. And so the message is be like David and go and do great things. Now, I found that one a little bit weird because of how often these chapters, particularly chapter 16, talks about how awesome David is before he meets Goliath. He was already a great warrior. He could already defeat lions and bears and he was already really good looking. In fact, even Goliath sees he's good looking and is enraged. It's... That's one common idea. The other common one is about how the David and Goliath story really helps us understand the Goliaths in our own lives, the giants in our own lives, the obstacles and the frustrations that we face in our life and how it's all about how the Bible, here as we read this passage, this is the Bible showing us how to be like David and to face our giants, right? How to trust God in the midst of our struggles, how to identify the five smooth stones that God has made available to us in our circumstance and even how to speak to our Goliaths, our giants, our obstacles, the way David speaks to Goliath. Now, for some of us, we've, we've heard sermons or we've read books along those lines and you might have even found those helpful. And so I want to I therefore gently suggest that those preachers and those books have done the Bible a disservice here. I think drawing those types of applications from this passage, from the, I think it's an irresponsible way to read the Old Testament. Now, before I explain why, I actually want to point out why there's a half-truth in it, right? There, there's, a, there's, a, a, there's a point where these applications are partly true. So, it is worth pointing out that David is presented here as a model Israelite, as someone as an example, he entrusts his whole life to God. He embodies Hannah's prayer. Remember how Hannah's prayer kind of shapes all of 1 and 2 Samuel? So Hannah's prayer starts like this in 1, 1 Samuel 2 verse 1. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies. 
for I delight in your deliverance, Lord. See, David is the model of Hannah's prayer here. And so there is a sense that David is a model of faith for us as well, that, it, that is there. God really will deliver us from his enemies. God really is the delight of our hearts. And we can look to David and be rightly inspired to follow God because we look back at him and we're encouraged to do that. In fact, that's what Hebrews 11 and 12 tell us to do. So there is a truth in us seeing David as an example of faith. But if that's all we do, I think we're missing the bigger picture. That is, if we read Old Testament passages and we're just trying to work out, if as I read this part of the Old Testament, is this something that I'm meant to follow or is it meant something, something I'm not meant to follow? Is this something I'm meant to do or not meant to do? We end up reading the Bible as if it's just an instruction manual for life. That is, we'll end up thinking of the Bible as this book that I pick up and I read and at every point I'm reading the Bible, what I'm trying to do, the lens I'm using to read the Bible is my life. As I read this passage, my focus is on me. I'm the topic as I read this passage. I'm the one that this is supposed to apply to. I make the Bible all about me. Can you see what the problem is there? That the Bible isn't about me or you. Or even about David. In fact, it's not about Israel. In fact, the Bible isn't even about heaven and hell. All those things are in the Bible. But the Bible is about God. The Bible is about what God has done and God will do and God's greatness. The Bible is about, every passage we get to in the Bible is all about God's greatness. How awesome he is displayed in Jesus. The Bible is about what God values, what God promises, how God keeps his promises, how he acts with grace and mercy and justice and faithfulness. And so we're not meant to pick up the Bible and read and glean tips and tricks for life as if the Bible's about us. We're meant to read the Bible and get to know our God and what he is like and what he is doing to bring himself glory through his son Jesus. So what happens when we do that with this passage? What is the David and Goliath passage telling us about God's greatness and God's plan? Well, first off, from the very first chapters of the Bible, we've been waiting for God to call a new champion of mankind. In the wake of Adam's failure in Genesis chapter 3, God has raised up different champions, different leaders of his people one after the other. And each one that God has raised up has given us a glimpse of what God's true future champion will look like. So we look at Noah and we get a glimpse of God's champion who will rescue God's people from God's judgment. And we look at Abraham and we get a glimpse of a champion who will bless God's people and give them a name and security. And we look at Moses and we see a leader of God's people, a champion who will speak God's words to his people and call them to follow God. But now, as we read 1 Samuel, we meet David, God's king from the heart. And we're introduced to a new aspect of what God's future champion will look like. David is a picture of God's champion who will rule as king and destroy God's enemies. Now, we've seen, we've seen this theme in the lead up to this. We've seen it in the book of Judges, of Judges come and, and defeat the enemies of God. But it's not until David that this image 
is made clear of a king who will rule and who will destroy nations. See, 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 16 and 17 is really the beginning of an era in Israel's history where the Davidic kingship becomes the model for every other kingship. Every future king gets measured against David. And this idea of what Israel's king should be, it doesn't just affect Israel. David's kingship gives us a glimpse of God's future champion, who will be a king and a ruler and who destroys nations and peoples. And we see this in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 gives us the lens to understand what David's doing, what David starts to do from this chapter. Psalm 2 was, kind of, was written around the time of David and it's often thought to be the national anthem of Israel because it's about Israel's king. Right? And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through it and see if you can hear these themes of God's king over nations right? as the judge and punisher of nations. Let me read through it again. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. But the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And then we hear the king's voice as the king tells us what God says to him. The king says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. And then we come back to the voice of the people. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son, or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. See, when we read about David being chosen by Samuel and David stepping out from the battle lines and David trusting God without sword or spear against an impossible enemy and defeating him with ease, we're meant to realize that this is the beginning of a new era. This is a new aspect of what God's future champion, Jesus, will be like. Not just a saviour of God's people and not just a teacher of God's people and not just one who blesses God's people, but he's also going to be a mighty king who defeats the enemies of God. So let me just step back for a second, see how we're approaching the Bible, we're trying to understand it, we're, as we read any passage, we're not asking how this fits with my story, we're, we're reading it and we're asking how does this passage fit with God's story throughout the whole Bible with God's unfolding plan, with God's agenda from the beginning to the end, all coming together in Jesus. And what David and Goliath is about is about how God's chosen king won't be someone you expect, but he will come and he will defeat all of God's enemies with ease. And that's what Jesus does. 
So this is where the David and Goliath story reminds us of an aspect of Jesus that we might tend to forget from time to time. In God's unfolding plan, Jesus is this awesome, terrifying king. He may not look like it at first, and you could easily underestimate him, and the Jews did, but because Jesus is God's anointed, chosen king, Jesus is also God's great, terrifying king. We see this in two ways. So first, Jesus is the one who goes into battle for us, for humanity, against our greatest enemy. That is, our greatest enemy is death. That's what the David and Goliath story points forward to. Jesus walking out to the cross is like David walking out to Goliath and both looking up at this hideous enemy of God's people and both entrusting their lives to God in that moment. That God will deliver them from this enemy, David from Goliath and Jesus from death. And that their victory will be the victory for their people. David over Goliath for the Israelites and Jesus over death for humanity. See, that's where we fit in the David-Goliath story. If we're going to read ourselves anywhere into 1 Samuel 16 and 17, it says the Israelites who are shaking in our sandals over in the corner, terrified of Goliath and watching Jesus step out and going, can he do it? Can he defeat our enemy for us? Because we're petrified. That's who we are. And then as, as David lifts Goliath's head, Jesus rolls the stone away. And Jesus says, look, touch. I was dead, but now I'm alive. And we rejoice like the Israelites did. That's what Paul does. So look at Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul sings, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're meant to look at Jesus' victory over death, and we're meant to rejoice like the Israelites when they saw David's victory over Goliath. But there's one more idea, and again, it might be one of those aspects of Jesus as king that we might forget from time to time. It's the picture of Jesus as the final judge and destroyer. So remember how Psalm 2 ends? Psalm 2 describes God's king, one who will destroy nations as easily as smashing plates on the ground, and that kings and rulers and armies will fear and celebrate with trembling because God's king will destroy you. We can't forget this. Jesus, our Jesus, our wonderful, merciful, loving king, he is still that type of king. The type of king who people should fear. And we see this again and again in the New Testament. Acts 17, Paul says, but now God commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this by raising him from the dead. Or two Thessalonians. Look how Jesus is described here. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified 
in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. Friends, Jesus will return and he will judge the nations. He will judge people. He will judge everyone. And he will do it with ease. No armies, no missiles, no technology will pose any threat to Jesus. They will all be swept away like leaves in the wind. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, willingly or unwillingly, that Jesus is the King. And so what do we do? when we see that Jesus is the true and greater David, we do exactly what Psalm 2 says. We take refuge in him. We do what the Israelites were doing. We do what Saul did. Saul was taking refuge in David. He was hiding behind him. That's what we do. We come to Jesus, great and terrifying Jesus, and we say, Lord and Master, I don't want to be your enemy. I don't want to be on the, the other side. I want to be on your side. I don't want to fight against you. I'm not going to do my thing anymore. I'm going to do your thing. I'm going to, I'm going to give you my life. You can be my king and I will take refuge in you. See, we have no hope When we see who Jesus is, we have no hope apart from in him, in his kindness, in his mercy, in his love. That's one of the things I've been reminding myself this week. As I've been looking through this week, uh, uh, coming to God in prayer, I've been reminding myself that as I pray to Jesus, I am praying to a terrifying, powerful king who is also loving and merciful and but who used his power to save me who went to death for me and here's the thing those two things are hard to comprehend right that that Jesus is both loving and merciful and peaceful and yet also the judge and the destroyer of all but that's the point that those two things are hard to hold together because God is huge the Bible's about God's greatness, how amazing he is. And so if you're reading the Bible and you get to a point where you go, man, this is so hard to keep all these things in my head, then that probably means you're close to understanding what, it's, what the big point is, that God is great and Jesus is awesome. Will you join me as we pray to Jesus, our great and awesome King? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you anoint him as our great king who goes and fights battles for us, who fights the battles that we cannot fight ourselves, that he takes on death and you deliver him. He destroys death for us. He takes on your enemies that they will not stand on the day Jesus returns. Father, help us to keep this picture of Jesus clear in our minds as terrifying. And yet also help us to comprehend how loving and kind and merciful he is that he uses his power to save and save us, though we don't deserve it. Thank you, Jesus, for being a great loving 
and terrifying King. Help us to serve you with joy and trembling. Amen.